Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The following podcast contains explicit language and content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Previously on Unraveled, Long Island serial killer. This was a boy found with six rocks stuffed in his mouth in a schoolyard. The young prosecutor was Tom Spoda, and the star witness in the case was a very young 14-year-old Jimmy Burke. That whole thing which happened, you know, 35 years ago is something that could be the catalyst, the birth of this relationship. Well, the thing is, once you make a deal with the devil, you can't unmake it. So our interest, of course, is James Burke, and is there more to his involvement than what's known? We will never know what happened, because at this point, I mean, it's just... The sands of time have washed over everything. Why was a man as compromised as James Burke put in charge of the police department at such a crucial point within the Long Island serial killer investigation? And why did his longtime ally, District Attorney Tom Spoda, publicly insert himself into this case? We needed to go back to the beginning, to the victims starting with the bodies of the first four women found on Gilgo Beach. Megan Waterman, Amber Costello, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, and Melissa Bartholomew. Ten bodies uncovered, and whoever's responsible is still out there. Do you want to start with how this entire thing started? It was a sex party. Police make mistakes. They're only human. But these weren't mistakes. He said your whole fucking family's done. If there's anybody who knows how to kill someone and get away with it, it's a cop. Somebody's just keeping the cover-up going. From ID and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, a seven-part podcast. We're going to show you that everything you think you know about the Long Island serial killer investigation 
is wrong. In June of 2010, 22-year-old Megan Waterman mysteriously vanished after walking out of a Holiday Inn in the town of Hopog in Suffolk County. So how did the Megan Waterman missing persons case get on your radar? So I was working on a story about um, unidentified human remains on land. And so I visited NamUs, the website, Mm -hmm. and I was like, I saw there's a missing person section. So I figured I'd just check that out. And I saw that Megan Waterman was missing a few miles away from my house. And I never heard anything about it. Nobody was talking about it. And it's like, you have this young girl and nobody's talking about it. How do you not talk about it? There's no outrage, nothing. That was journalist Jacqueline Gallucci. At the time of Megan's disappearance, she was working at the Long Island Press. I met up with her at a diner in Hopog, just a few short miles from where Megan was last seen. Jacqueline called the detective in charge of the case and learned that Megan was a single mom who had been struggling to make ends meet and turned to sex work to supplement her minimum wage job. She came down with her boyfriend from Maine on a six-hour bus trip, and they had come. They would come to Long Island maybe once or twice a month regularly and so she could work. So this was not her first time here. On the night of Sunday, June 6th, Megan made arrangements to meet a date at 1.30 a.m. The last time she was seen was walking away from the Hapog um, Holiday Inn on surveillance footage and she's never seen again. This surveillance video has never been released to the public. She called her daughter a few hours before that to, to say goodnight. And she left her phone, all her belongings in the hotel room. She walked out into the darkness, and that was it. Megan's boyfriend, Akeem Cruz, was investigated, but cleared as a possible suspect in her disappearance. He was, however, charged for bringing Megan across state lines for the purpose of prostitution. I talked to the detective in Maine, and... So it started coming out that she had ads on Craigslist, and that's really all that was known about the case at the time. It was really a police blotter item. That escort is missing. In October of 2010, Jackie's story about Megan made the cover of the Long Island Press. It was ominously titled, Lost Girls. When women go missing on Long Island, some matter. Prostitutes don't. What happened after that story came out? There were a lot of... A lot of people didn't know about the story. A lot of people actually did care, but there were also a lot of negative comments about, oh, well, she was a prostitute. She was a sex worker. What do you expect? And that was, like, upsetting, especially for the family. As Megan's family waited for answers, Suffolk County police were searching for another missing sex worker named Shannon Gilbert. Shannon was reported missing by her mother in May of that same year. When you were investigating Megan Waterman, did you know anything about Shannon Gilbert? No. That was after they found the first human remains. That's when I found out about Shannon Gilbert. Do you remember when the case first landed on your desk? Yes, not the exact day, but approximately. We now know that Shannon Gilbert disappeared on May 1st. But uh, one of my commanders came into my office sometime in June to tell me, uh, Chief, we got some issues. And I said, okay, sit down, fill me in. 
Dominic Verone is the former chief of detectives for the Suffolk County Police Department. He also filled me in on the disappearance of Megan Waterman, uh, which is about the same time. And that's when I was first uh, thrust into the case and became aware of, uh, of the facts. There was a tremendous amount of effort as the months ensued. On December 11th, a canine officer named John Malia took his sniffer dog out to Ocean Parkway and makes a gruesome discovery. The dog gave me an indication, which means his tail started uh, waving. He uh, started sampling the air. At that point, I saw the skeletal, skeletal remains of a body. When he finds the skeletal remains, you're notified immediately. Yes. And what was your initial thought? Shannon Gilbert. We all assumed that uh, you know, it was Shannon Gilbert. The search for more evidence led to another body, then another, then another. All of them along Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach. None of them were Shannon Gilbert. What was your reaction two days later when the three other bodies were found? Um, shock. Um, I've, I've trained with the FBI. I've trained with about uh, profiling and serial killer uh, investigations. And uh, I immediately knew what we had, particularly since the bodies were uh, in a nearby cluster and basically they were all disposed of in a similar manner. So we knew we had a serial killer immediately. The victims became known as the Gilgo Four. The first identified was Megan Waterman. I was really upset because I felt like I knew her. I had her picture hung up on my desk and every day I looked at it and it was her missing poster. And I remember the day they found her taking the poster down and just writing found on it. And I was just so upset. We thought that she was trafficked. No one thought that she was murdered. So it's just crazy. The other three victims were identified as Amberlyn Costello, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, and Melissa Bartholomew. None of the bodies would have been discovered if it wasn't for Shannon Gilbert. The 24-year-old was working as an online escort and was last seen running from the small seaside community of Oak Beach over a year ago. She's still missing. Just down the road from where Shannon disappeared, four other women were found in burlap sacks. All of them were working as escorts off the website Craigslist. It didn't take long for detectives to find some common links between the Gilgo Four. They were all smaller women, um, all had ads on Craigslist. A lot of them had drug problems. They had life circumstances that led them. They were victims before they ever set foot on the street. And um, it's just they, it, it wasn't, it was their circumstances. 27-year-old Amber Costello lived 10 miles from Gilgo Beach. Amber was recently divorced and alternating between waitressing and escorting. For years, she struggled with a heroin addiction, something her sister speculated was triggered by the trauma of being sexually molested when she was six. 
Amber's roommate reported that the last time he saw her was on the night of September 2nd, 2010, at about 10.30 p.m. That's when Amber left their apartment to walk down the street to meet a stranger. This stranger had called her three times that evening and offered her $1,500 for her services. Twenty-five-year-old Maureen Brainerd Barnes had been missing for more than three years. She had been out of the sex industry for seven months, but had just returned to it after receiving an eviction notice. She was the mother of two young children and an aspiring songwriter, and she was very close to her sister. She called her sister from Manhattan's Penn Station and said she was, quote, planning on spending the day in New York City. And after that, she was going back home to Connecticut, but she was never heard from again. The fourth victim to be identified was Melissa Bartholomew. The 24-year-old had recently moved out on her own, but kept in close contact with her mother and half-sister who lived in upstate New York. Melissa finished high school and got her degree in cosmetology. Her dream was to go to New York City and work as a hairstylist and eventually open up her own salon. Melissa was just, she was my baby. She had the biggest heart. She was the happiest little kid. She always wanted to hug people. She always wanted kisses. If you were doing dishes, Melissa wanted to get right in there and help you out. Melissa had last been seen 17 months prior on July 12th, 2009. That's the day she told her boyfriend-slash-pimp, Johnny Terry, that she had a $1,000 date on Long Island. According to Terry, this well-paying client had assured Melissa that she didn't need anyone to drive her to the date. It's unknown how she ended up on Long Island. But she was last seen sitting on the curb near the apartment she shared with her five cats in the Bronx. It's what happened right after she went missing that might be the most useful information when it comes to getting a read on who this killer might be. Melissa's family had already grown concerned about her whereabouts. Her younger sister Amanda had been planning on visiting Melissa the following week. Instead, the teen received a menacing phone call from the killer on Melissa's phone four days after her sister had vanished. He found Amanda's information inside the list of contacts. It was so sadistic and so hurtful and so controlling and uh, was extremely sadistic. It seemed obvious that he enjoyed inflicting torture, almost, to a, you know, the sister of someone who's grieving for her sister. Dominic Verone interviewed Melissa's sister. He is one of the very few who knows what the killer said. It's very telling about him. Controlling, domineering, um, sadistic, almost psychopathic. We know that some of the things that he had said to her, he asked things like, is this Melissa's little sister? I hear you're a half-breed. Do you know what your sister is doing? She's a whore. That was from the first call, according to her mom's attorney. Are you going to be a whore like your sister? 
And then he described in graphic detail what he had done to Melissa sexually. My poor daughter went through hell and I wasn't there to protect her. And I just, I didn't know anything about it. Over the course of the next week, this man made three more calls to Amanda. I don't think she'll ever forget that voice. It's just something that probably will never go away. To find out more about Melissa, I drove to Manhattan to meet up with a woman named Critzia. Critzia is important because she's friends with Melissa. She can speak to who Melissa was as a person, which is important, not just as a victim. Hi, I'm Billy. Nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you. We walked the streets where Melissa and Critzia used to work, and we stopped in front of a bar near Times Square. This is Melissa's spot. Melissa would always come here before work, have a drink. She was a nice girl. She was pretty. She didn't cause drama. She would come, she would sit, she would never pay for her drinks. She would call me up, I would come. We would have a bodily nipple shot, followed by a amaretto sour drink. And we would have girl talk. And I like your nails and your hair is so pretty. And oh my God, your teeth look so great. And your makeup, your blends. And I never thought I was ever going to see her again. I asked her about the John on Long Island that Melissa was supposed to meet. I know that she's been to Long Island twice. Or she met the man here. And then the second time she met. I know she went to Long Island one time. I know she came back with money. I know she was happy. She said she didn't do nothing with the guy. Or nothing happened. Or she, not, like, she was like, oh... Not much. It was nothing. Nothing happened. And like she made like a whole bunch of money, 600 or 900 or whatever. And so it might have been a John that, and was the John older or? Yeah, I think so. The way she described him, middle-aged white guy. Middle-aged white guy. If it would have been anything different, she would have specifically mentioned it, especially if it's a young guy. Like when we get young guys that face us a lot, we talk about it. But to her, it was just a regular guy, a regular child. Most, mostly those were our clients, mostly always. Did she ever come back from Long Island with $1,000 other than that one time? I don't know. Yeah. I know about two times that she went. I know the one time she came back with a lot of money. I know that the day that she left, supposedly she said that he was giving her $1,000, that she was going to get $1,000. As we talked about Melissa, Kritzia shared some of the hardships the two had encountered as they worked. People say, oh, you took the easy way out. There's nothing easy about this. It's like you're shooting a movie, you know? You got your hair, your makeup, your clothes, your extra tie, your heels, your smile. Hi, honey, how are you? And all that dumb bullshit. And now, like, you have to get a guy, find a guy, talk to the guy, convince the guy. Now he's drunk. And a lot of them like to play games because they would push you. Like, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to do this? And then they take it to that dark place and they want to involve children and all these other crazy shit. Kritzia also detailed how the work took an emotional toll on both of them. There will always be that sadness because it's like, it's like a puzzle and you're always giving away a one piece. So you're never complete. You're always just giving away this one piece, this one piece and you feel lonely. And Melissa felt that and she was ready to go home. 
because she didn't plan to come here to be a stripper and a hooker. She planned to come here to have a salon and like make money, live comfortable, make her family live good. And that didn't happen. Melissa, Amber, Maureen, and Megan all had hopes of getting out of sex work and dreams they wanted to pursue. The similarities the Gilgo Ford did have were helping detectives stitch together a profile of the suspect. And coming into focus was a man who appeared to be very calculating. Someone who was familiar with how to get away with murder. After the discovery of the Gilgo Four, Melissa, Maureen, Megan, and Amber, Suffolk County Police still had not found Shannon. The search continued. This was an enormous operation, unprecedented uh, within the history of the department and local departments. We we utilized Nassau County Police, New York State Police, their dog teams, their aviation units, uh, marine units, divers, all out exhaustive search. We pulled out the police academy class to go shoulder to shoulder to traverse various areas for any kind of evidence. It was a massive, massive, coordinated undertaking. On March 29, 2011, just months after the Gilgo Four were found, the community's worst fears were realized. A gruesome find by Gilgo Beach. Skeletal remains discovered right off of Ocean Parkway. 
they have found what appears to be another body near Gilco Beach. A fifth victim had been discovered. Body count along Ocean Parkway continues to climb. Then in April, the remains of five more victims were discovered, bringing the total to 10. But none of the newly discovered bodies turned out to be Shannon Gilbert. And four of them were unidentified. Their identities remain a mystery to this day. One of the unidentified victims was an Asian man who is wearing women's clothing, leading some to speculate that he too had been working as a sex worker. We are going to refer to this victim as he, as we do not know the pronouns they used in life. Forensic tests revealed he was between 17 and 23 years old. The cause of death appeared to be blunt force trauma, and he had been killed five to 10 years before he was found. He's known as either Asian male or John Doe. To detectives, the discovery of a male victim was perplexing. It didn't fit the profile of a single killer. Five miles east of Gilgo Beach, detectives found the dismembered skeletal remains of a female wrapped in plastic. DNA analysis linked the remains to a torso that had been found in 1997. The torso had been wrapped in a garbage bag, stuffed inside a green plastic container, then dumped in Hempstead Lake State Park, about 20 minutes away. The unidentified victim had been registered in the system as Jane Doe No. 3, but today she's better known as Peaches because of a tattoo of a bitten, heart-shaped peach on one of her breasts. But then, there was an even bigger shock. DNA testing connected Peaches to the body of yet another victim. This one found fairly close to the Gilgo Four. It was the skeleton of a toddler who has been genetically confirmed to be the daughter of Peaches. Baby Doe, or toddler as she's known, was wrapped in a blanket. She showed no visible signs of trauma. Peaches and her daughter were African-American. Yet another difference in the pattern that had been established with the Gilgo Four, drawing into question whether or not they were connected to the same killer. The last of the unidentified victims was found along Ocean Parkway on April 11th of that same year. They were only partial remains, which included a skull. That skull belongs to the same woman whose dismembered legs were found wrapped in plastic back in 1996, meaning investigators must now stretch back 15 years to find the killer or killers who have been dumping bodies along Ocean Parkway. These dismembered legs had been found on Fire Island, which is 15 miles from Gilgo Beach. And this is why this victim is known as Fire Island Jane Doe. We realize this can get confusing if you don't know the area, but if you keep in mind that all of the victims were left next to Ocean Parkway, whether it be an intact corpse or a dismembered one, it's easier to see why they appear to be connected to a single serial killer. The search for bodies along Ocean Parkway intensified. The remains of two more women were found, but unlike the other victims, these women were decapitated and dismembered. Their hands and heads were buried near Gilgo. The rest of their remains were found years ago, 45 miles away in Manorville. These last two victims are known as the Manorville Two. They were eventually identified as Jessica Taylor and Valerie Mack. Jessica's skull, 
hands, and one of her forearms were all wrapped in plastic and found along Ocean Parkway. But her torso had been found in 2003 in Manorville. Jessica was 20 years old. She had come from Washington, D.C., and had been arrested on more than one occasion for sex work. She was last seen at the Manhattan Port Authority on July 26, 2003. About a week after the discovery of Jessica's body parts, the head, right foot, and hands of the second of the Manorville two were found. And through DNA, police connected the remains to a torso found 11 years earlier by some hunters in Manorville, not far from where Jessica Taylor's torso had been found. Unlike Jessica Taylor, who had been identified by a tattoo near her hip, the identity of this last victim, Jane Doe Six, remained unknown until May 28th of 2020. That's when Suffolk County Police Commissioner Geraldine Hart surprised the public by announcing they'd made a break in the case. Thanks to the work of our detectives and our partners with the FBI, today we are announcing that Jane Doe number six has been positively identified as Valerie Mack. Valerie Mack, who was 24 years old in 2000 when she went missing, was described as five feet tall and approximately 100 pounds with brown hair and hazel eyes. She was working as an escort in Philadelphia at the time of her disappearance. Family members last saw her in the spring or summer of 2000 in the area of Port Republic, New Jersey. So back to 2011. There were now 10 bodies or body parts found along Ocean Parkway. The question on everyone's mind, could one person have killed all 10 of these victims? Or does the fact that some of the victims were dismembered, two were black, one was male, did that mean that there was more than one killer? Here's former police commissioner Dormer addressing Suffolk County's legislature on the subject. We still believe it's one killer at this point, unless we get information that would change that. But here's why some might think the Manorville 2 and the Gilgo 4 are connected, beyond the fact that their remains were found just a handful of miles from each other. All six of these women were involved in sex work. All were last seen during the summer months. And at least two of the four Gilgo women had received unusually large cash offers for their time, $1,000 or more. I think, you know, he, he knows how to gain compliance. He's probably charming. He's a talker. And he, he motivates them with a significant amount of cash overnight. It's almost an offer they can't refuse. These girls are desperately trying to make money. And they have to work hard for it. they normally would get. To think of an overnight for a thousand, or as in Amber Costello's case, a $1,500 offer. So they let their guard down and they just get pulled into his web. The killer was also cunning enough to manipulate them into meeting him in locations where no security cameras could capture them. He insisted on negotiating the details over the phone so no written records of their dates exist. And finally, there was an undeniable connection between the physical type of women he sought. All were petite, around 100 pounds, and very young. 
But many can't get past the fact that Jessica and Valerie, the Manorville too, had been dismembered. Could this be the M.O. of a different killer? We went to Manorville to try and figure it out. So we're, we're coming up on it right now. Just go a little slow here. Right here? Yeah, right before the stop sign. Perfect. We found the spot where Jessica Taylor's torso had been left back in 2003. Manorville is 40 miles away from Gilgo Beach, where the first four women were found, reportedly wrapped in burlap. It looks like, yeah, we're spot on. So yep. it's going to be right here it. If the burlap four happened a significant amount of time later, that could be something he developed. We don't know when Valerie Mack exactly went missing. We know she was last seen in the summer of 2000. We know her body was found in November of 2000. That would mean that three years later, when he kills Jessica Taylor, he does the same thing. He dismembers the body, leaves the torso out here, and then puts the body parts over on Ocean Parkway. Jessica Taylor's body, though, her torso, is found within a week. That's when he realizes this is a no-go, but nobody's finding anything on Ocean Parkway. I'm going to just do Ocean Parkway, not bother. With the dismemberment. Exactly. And then this person does that with the next four. When he was working on the case, Dominic Verone thought the killer's choice of Ocean Parkway was very telling and it fit into the profile of a killer who knew how to get away with murder. He was very calculating and cunning and clever as to where he picked to dump those remains. They're an area that very, very rarely does anyone traverse the area on foot, maybe an occasional jogger. Uh, so he was very, very smart in where he dumped the bodies using some of the methods that he did to uh, encourage uh, decay, particularly when you expose the bodies to those elements in that particular area. And also in an area where the smells of a decaying body would be easily disguised by the smells of marsh and, and, and wildlife. A little further down Ocean Parkway, deep inside another isolated patch of roadside bramble, Chief Arone and his team would find the answer of what happened to Shannon Gilbert. Suffolk Police Commissioner Richard Dormer says skeletal remains believed to be the 24-year-olds were found in the marshy area not far from where Ocean Parkway meets the Robert Moses Causeway. On December 13th of 2011, 19 months after she went missing, Shannon Gilbert's body was located just a couple of miles from the Gilgo Four. And the Lisk investigation would never be the same. On December 10th, 2011, friends and family of Megan Waterman, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Amberlynn Costello, and Melissa Bartholomew held a vigil at Gilgo Beach. Today, a prayer from the families left behind. They let balloons go into the crisp blue sky. Then they traveled along the parkway.
stopping at the closest spot to where their loved one's remains were found. A day for sadness and also anger. No, disgusts me. It disgusts me. I don't understand how somebody can just take a human's life for no reason at all. Before this sick bastard is caught, they are going to find more bodies out here in these woods. They need to catch him, and they need to catch him quick. In a show of solidarity, Shannon Gilbert's mother, Mary, also attended the vigil as the search for her own daughter continued. Little did Mary know that Shannon's body would be found just two days later. The body was found approximately one quarter mile northeast of where her personal belongings were located. It appears that she was heading towards the parkway, towards the lighting on the causeway. And so that would lend to our theory that she was trying to get out of the area. To the media and the public, Shannon Gilbert was the likely 11th victim of the Long Island serial killer. Shannon had been found in Oak Beach, which was just down the road from Gilgo Beach. Shannon had been making her living as a sex worker in the New York metro area and had ended up on Long Island to meet a client she met online. And Shannon matched the physical profile of the women that the predator of the Manorville 2 and Gilgo 4 had been stalking. White and petite. 24-year-old Shannon had grown up in the small village of Ellenville, New York. She had moved to the big city after graduating early from high school to pursue her dream of becoming a singer on Broadway. And like most of the other victims, Shannon had turned to sex work as a temporary means of getting by until her plans worked out. On the night of May 1st, Shannon arranged for a date with a recent divorcee named Joseph Brewer in the upscale Long Island community of Oak Beach. As a safety precaution, Shannon had a driver named Michael Pack take her on the hour-plus drive from Manhattan to Oak Beach. Pack told police the two pulled up to Brewer's house at around 2 a.m. He sat in the car while Shannon went in. Three hours later, she came out, appearing delirious and upset. According to her phone records, she called 911 at about 5 a.m. and remained on the phone for several minutes. She was on the phone with the state police for a considerable amount of time. That young lady did not know where she was. All she knew, as far as we know, is that she was driven to Long Island near Jones Beach. Pack said that Shannon refuses help, so he followed her in his car as she ran down the dark road to the home of Brewer's neighbor, a retiree named Gus Coletti. Here he is in a news report shortly after Shannon went missing. All of a sudden I heard somebody screaming and banging on my door. She says, help me, help me. I asked her what was the matter and she didn't answer me. She just stood there staring at me. Coletti said Shannon then ran and hid under a boat next to his house. And that's when Pack came up to Gus's doorstep. Oh, we were having a party down there, and the girl got upset and left. I'm looking for the girl. He took off after her, and that was the last I saw her. Shannon ran from Coletti's house and rang the doorbell of another Oak Beach resident, Barbara Brennan. Brennan didn't feel comfortable opening the door, but at 5.22 a.m., she called 911 to ask for help. Police arrived at 6.10 a.m., but by then, Shannon had vanished. In the ensuing months, the search for Shannon caught the attention of John Ray, an attorney. 
The first time I heard Shannon Gilbert's name was in a newspaper. I didn't hear it, I read it, because the controversy regarding her disappearance had already brewed up and was being reported upon. Ray also had problems with the explanation police were giving as the cause of death. Suffolk County espoused its official theory through the voice of Commissioner Dormer. And the official theory said by Dormer was that Shannon drowned, which is why I walked the marsh later on to see if that was true. And we discovered that their their theory was absurd. The, The water was only inches deep. It didn't even cover my shoes. So she couldn't have drowned. No one doubts that Shannon died under mysterious circumstance, but some do not believe there was foul play. Here is the current police commissioner, Geraldine Hart. What we know about Shannon is it, it's an, you know, an undetermined death for sure. It was unattended and it's something that we are gonna pursue as an open case. However, there are many, many strong arguments to be made that her disappearance does not fit the pattern of the Gilgo Beach serial killer. She was driven there by a known driver. We have the individual that she's going to meet known. Um, None of this is is the same as the the other girls. The other girls uh, did not have a driver. Uh, There was no known person that they were going to see. That, That was all known for Shannon. It's also important to keep in mind that Shannon was able to call 911 and stay on the phone with police for over 20 minutes. Hardly the signature of a skilled serial killer. But there are several suspicious aspects of that night that police have not been able to explain. The most obvious is that something in Joseph Brewer's house made Shannon think her life was in danger. She told the 911 operator that they were trying to kill her. John Ray is an outspoken proponent of the theory that Shannon had been lured in, drugged, and set up for something sinister that night. There were at Brewer's house, parties with sex workers, numerous sex workers, numerous people. There were um, drugs that were freely flowing, and they also the community seemed to know it. Nobody did anything about it, and there were overdoses and deaths. On May 3rd, an Oak Beach resident named Dr. Peter Hackett made a suspicious call to Shannon's mother. It wasn't the first time a man had called to make inappropriate contact with a victim's family. Melissa Bartholomew's sister had received a call just days after she went missing. And Shannon's sister, Sherry Gilbert, told the media. Sheree Gilbert says she and her family told Suffolk detectives half a dozen times about a disturbing phone call they received just days after Shannon Gilbert disappeared. They say someone claiming to be this man, Dr. Peter Hackett, called Shannon's mother and said Shannon had stayed at his Oak Beach home for the night and left in the morning with her driver. Hackett says that call didn't come from him. I never saw Shannon Gilbert. I asked Hackett about that phone call today. The talk of that, did you ever have any sort of teen center or anything like that when you heard? What do you think when you hear? That was Dr. Peter Hackett himself talking to a local news reporter, responding to Sherry's claim. Months later, when phone records proved that Hackett had indeed made the calls, he confessed to what he'd done, but said he knew nothing more. I made, I returned some calls 
I never saw Shannon Gilbert. Hackett was reportedly investigated as a suspect by the police, but no arrest was ever made. What we did hear from multiple sources, though, is that Hackett, as well as a number of other Oak Beach residents, participated in, or had knowledge of, X-rated sex parties. The parties are said to be drug-fueled affairs, in which the highest-ranking officials in Suffolk County politics and members of the police department mingle with strippers and sex workers. Joe Scalise, a longtime Oak Beach resident, believes Dr. Hackett was a member of this party crowd. You know, at these parties, I think, uh, you know, the, the different people were there for different reasons. Some of them were just there for the drugs, some of them were there for the women, and uh, some of them there were there at the end for the killing. And uh, so just because you're at these parties doesn't mean you're the Long Island serial killer. I don't think everyone who was at the party knew what was going on. I don't think uh, everyone who was at the party is guilty of murder, but uh, there's definitely, when you get down to the, uh, you know, the end, there's a few guys that know everything. Scalise's allegation sounds like something straight out of a movie. But could there be truth in his story? Is it possible people knew of murderous acts happening in Oak Beach, but they stayed quiet because they had their own secrets to hide? Shannon brought the whole thing to light. There's a bunch of uh, people in Oak Beach that like to party and like to do certain things. Uh, and this had been going on for years. And now it finally came to light because someone escaped and was able to call the police. I asked Jacqueline Gallucci, who would cover the story for the Long Island Press, if she thought Shannon's death was connected to the 10 other victims found along Ocean Parkway. I do. Personally, I do. I, I don't think she accidentally drowned. That is the most absurd thing to me because she was, she entered the marsh in one area and her clothing was found. Then she was found a quarter of a mile away. She disappeared and where else could she be but that marsh? Because where else would she be? I looked at a map and I'm like, okay, she disappeared here. She's got to be here. And not because I'm so smart, but because where else would she be? It's just... There's so many questions now, and if she was found sooner, maybe they would have had more to work with. As we investigated Oak Beach, we wanted a first-hand account of these supposed sex parties to find someone who had attended them. Then we met Jane. That's not her real name. We agreed to hide her identity. Jane says she attended some of those illicit sex parties in Oak Beach back in 2011. That's the same year that Shannon went missing. And who was Jane's first John in Oak Beach? None other than James Burke. And he was just a few months shy of being appointed chief of police of Suffolk County. And the one ultimately responsible for catching the Long Island serial killer. Next on Unraveled Long Island Serial Killer. At this party, did you know, did you know he was a cop? Yeah, I knew he was a cop. I didn't know like that he was so high up. He was just very aggressive, and my eyes got all teared up, and I was, you know, clearly uncomfortable. I don't think he cared. How is it that he 
is in charge of this investigation when he himself is an addict of sex workers. As time passes, memories fade, witnesses die. It's a cover-up of some sort. If you have information or anything you want to share about the Long Island serial killer case, we'd like to hear from you. Email us at unraveltips at gmail.com. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and Jeff Kuntz along with myself, Billy Jensen, and Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID, Thomas Cutler. Additional producing and writing by Margaret Aronson. Our editor is Aaron Frecia. You can also submit anonymous tips to the Suffolk County Police Department by either calling Crime Stoppers at 1-800-220-TIPS or by visiting their website, gilgonews.com. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. Make sure to check for episode five next week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And it helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening and for your support. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.